You know, uh, the Bible is a really old book. In fact, it's a, it's a collection of really old books. It's an anthology of really old books. The, the books that make up our Bibles were all written between 1900 and 3400 years ago. That's really old. Can, a, can something this old really do anything for us today? It can, and more than anything, what the Bible does is the Bible, I call up here, and a, a lot of us call the Bible God's Word, and it is, but here's what I mean when I say that. The, these books that make up this little library of books are the, the way God chose to reveal himself to us. It's, it's how God chose to let us know what he is like, what pleases him, what displeases him, what he expects. So what could be more practical than knowing God? This is how we come to know him. But the Bible doesn't only teach us about God. The Bible also teaches us about us. In the Bible, we learn what our problems are. In the Bible, we learn all of the strategies that people tend to use um, if we don't want God to be our God. What we try to fill ourselves with to, to get things like peace and hope and joy and love apart from the author of those things. This morning we're going to read 2 Samuel chapter 15. And when you read it, if you're like me, you read it one time and go, what could I ever learn from that? It is another story that seems uh, confusing, but it tries to make up for being confusing by being completely irrelevant. That's what it, that's what it seems like. But if, if you study a little deeper, you'll see yourself, you'll see us in this passage. It's, it's, it's pretty contemporary. It's a good example of how people haven't changed much in the last 3,000 years. And there's a pretty good example of the kind of people you and I, anonymous little you and I out here in the middle of nowhere, the kind of people we ought to be. Let's, let's read our story together. This is 1 Samuel, excuse me, this is 2 Samuel chapter 15. It reads this way. Now it came about after this that Absalom provided for himself a chariot and horses and 50 men as runners before him. Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. And when any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And he would say, I'm from one of the tribes of Israel. And then Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. Moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land. 
Then every man who has any suit or cause could come to me, and I would give him justice. And when a man came near to prostrate himself before Absalom, Absalom would put out his hand and take hold of the guy and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. And that's the way Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. Now, it came about at the end of four years. uh, There's a textural variant there. Some of our Bibles say 40, but it's almost surely this was a four-year period. That Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I was living at Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord shall indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. The king said to Absalom, Go in peace. So Absalom arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Then 200 men went with Absalom from Jerusalem who were invited and went innocently and they did not know anything. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city in Gilo, where he was offering the sacrifices. And the conspiracy was strong for the people increased continually with Absalom. Then a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. And David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for otherwise none of us will escape from Absalom. Go in haste, or he will overtake us quickly and bring down calamity on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Then the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king chooses. So the king David went out and all his household with him, but he left ten concubines to keep the house. The king went out and all the people with him, and they stopped at the last house. Now all his servants passed on beside him, all the Kirathites, all the Pelathites, all the Gittites, 600 men who had come from Gath passed before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, why will you also go with us? Return and remain with the king, Absalom, for you are a foreigner and also an exile. Return to your own place. You came only yesterday. And shall I today make you wander with us while I go where I will? Return and take back your brothers. Mercy and truth be with you. But Ittai answered the king and said, As the Lord lives and as you, my lord the king, lives, surely wherever my lord the king may be, whether for death or for life, there also I will be. Therefore David said to Ittai, Go and pass over. So Ittai the Gittite passed over with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. While all the country was weeping with a loud voice, all the people passed over. The king also passed over the brook Kidron, and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. Now behold, Zadok also came, and all the Levites with him, carrying the ark of the covenant of God. And they sat down the ark of the God, and Abiathar the priest came up until all the people had finished passing from the city. And the king said to the priest Zadok, "'Return the ark of God to the city.'" If I find favor in the sight of the Lord, then he will bring me back again and show me both it and his house. But if God should say this, I have no delight in you. Behold, here I am. Let God do to me as seems good to him. The king said also to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Return to the city in peace 
and your two sons with you, your son Ahimaaz and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I am going to wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. And therefore Zadok and Abiathar returned the ark of God to Jerusalem and remained there. And David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went. And his head was covered and he walked barefoot. Then all the people who were with him each covered his head and went up weeping as they went. Now someone told David saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. It happened as David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, that behold, Hushai the archite met him with his coat torn and dust on his head. And David said to him, If you pass over with me, then you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so I will now be your servant, then you can thwart the counsel of Ahithophel for me. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So it shall be that whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall report to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send me everything you hear. And so Hushai, David's friend, came into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. There's our, our passage for today. And that, that chapter tells the story of how David's son Absalom orchestrated what we would call a coup d'etat, a hostile overthrow of Jerusalem and the government, how he wrestled control of Israel away from his father David and took it from him himself. The first 12 verses of the chapter are the story of the political maneuvering that Absalom used to raise support. Because even in this style of government, it is way easier to have control or take control if people want you to be in control. So the first 12 verses are how Absalom raised support. He spent four years doing this. And the political playbook that Absalom operates out of, if you think about it, will sound very familiar. Let's, let's look at what he does, does and see if it sounds familiar at all to us. The first thing Absalom did when he returned home from exile, and if you want to know why he was in exile, listen to the previous two sermons, but he gets home from exile, and the first thing he does is he provides for himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run ahead of him. What Absalom is doing here, he's got designs on being king, and if you want to be king, you've got to look the part. So he makes himself, we would say, look presidential. This is the equivalent of him uh, buying a limo and a huge secret service detail to run alongside the limo. He wants to look the part, but actually he is looking more than the part, better than the part. If you would read the whole Bible prior to this point, you'll find this. Absalom is the first Israelite to use a chariot. Israelites have never used chariots. The enemies of Israel, the powerful enemies like the Egyptians, the Arameans, 
Uh, several Canaanite tribes, they're the ones that use chariots. So, so Absalom is trying to look a little, a little better than his dad. If you want the job, you got to look the part. But you can't look too much, you know, detached from the people. The second part of Absalom's plan, verses 2 through 6, Absalom wants to appear like a man of the people. We're told that Absalom would go every day. He'd get up early and go every day. He put the hours in. He worked hard to get where he wanted to go. And he would go and stand by the way or by the road that led to the city gate. In our way of thinking, that would be like saying, uh, he went and stood on the sidewalk that leads from the courthouse parking lot to the courthouse steps. Because the city gate is where court cases were heard. He would go there to meet as many people as he could, shake a lot of hands, kiss a lot of babies, and make people feel like he was on their side. He's, he talks to a lot of people and he makes small talk. People would come into town. He would say, hey, uh, welcome to Jerusalem. Where are you from? And when we read conversations like this, this is not a quoted actual conversation. This is a summary of lots of conversations. When someone would say, oh, I'm from Nazareth or I'm from uh, Jericho or I'm from wherever, he would say, well, what brings you to town? And invariably, because of where he was standing, he would hear a lot of people that had a lot of complaints lawsuits, problems. And wouldn't you know, Absalom always agreed with them when he heard what they were there for. And he would, he would listen to their complaint and say things like, oh man, your claims are all valid and proper. You, are, you should definitely win your suit. And then in, a, in another stroke of political genius, Absalom would always appeal to something that has been gaining people political power and popularity for centuries, and that's grievance with their government. He says, there's no representative of the king to hear you, or your Bible might say something like, no man listens to you on the part of the king. Do you hear what he's doing there? Get people focused on their problems and then get people convinced their government is the source of their problems. It's been happening for 3,000 years. That David, he's just not cutting it. Listen to these problems you have. Where's David when you need him? You know how much happier you would be if I don't know, somebody else was king. He appeals to grievance that David is derelict in his duties. And then he just starts to float the idea out there that if he, what he really wants to say is if I were king, we wouldn't have all these problems. See, the grievance is that government is the is, is the biggest source of our problems. The solution is me. I alone can fix this. Now he has to be careful because 
You can't run around saying I should be king instead of David because that's treason, right? We can campaign for president or governor or something here. It's part of our system. You couldn't then. So he just says, you know, if I were appointed judge, if I were like the Supreme Court, somebody would finally get some justice around here. The government is our problem. I am the solution. And then to complete this man of the people vibe he's trying to throw out there. In verse 6, when people would recognize him, see him like, oh man, that's the prince. That's the crown prince at this point, the oldest anyway in the line of secession. And they would run up to Absalom to meet this celebrity and they would try to treat him the way they were, convention said they were supposed to. They start to bow down. We're told Absalom would catch them and raise them up. No, 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 none of that. You shouldn't be bowing to me because I'm just like you. I'm, I am one of you. And the kiss that he gives them is the, is the kiss of just acceptance fellowship. I'm, I, I, you shouldn't bow to me. That's for those, those politicians in Jerusalem. I am actually one of you. That's how Absalom behaved. And that's how he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. Any of that sound at all familiar? Can you think of any, anyone with political aspirations wanting to look the part and then, and then trying to uh, meet as many people as possible and make them think, I think like you, I see your problems, I can be the solution and I'm just like you. Even though I was born <laughs> like fabulously wealthy someplace else. I'm actually not at all like you, but I'm just like, we do this all the time. This is why the common man bit. It seems like we never are out of campaign season. We've got like a six week break and they'll start campaigning again. Pay attention. When you see the, new, the, the newest, latest candidates trying to act like the common man, you know what you'll see? They'll be on the campaign trail. They'll have their sleeves rolled up, right? Why? That's the way us regular people do it, right? There'll be some footage of them in a factory, maybe out on a farm. This is why Benito Mussolini, you know Mussolini, he had himself filmed throwing hay in the fields, Right? Um, it's why politicians, this is another great one and common one. They'll be on the, on the trail and, and somehow the press will get noticed that he's going to be in that ice cream shop later. And so they'll have the cameras or, or buying hot dogs or hamburgers. You know they have other people who buy them food, who get their food ready, right? Why do they have that footage? Because look at me being all regular, all normal. This is the way the regular folks live. Something else that's in his playbook um, comes later, comes next. Absalom is not just a man of the people, he's a man of God. Absalom makes this big show of wanting to go to Hebron to worship God. Because I'm, my faith is very important to me. 
This was part of his coup attempt, but how many of our politicians make sure there's footage of them? Look at us going to church. Look at this footage of me praying or others praying with me. We really haven't changed that much. Not the people trying to gain power and not those of us who fall for this stuff. So Absalom makes a big show of wanting to go worship God, fulfill this vow that apparently he hadn't found time to fulfill over the previous four years. But he tells his dad, I got to go worship in Hebron, another place. This is part of the coup attempt, though. David gives him permission to go, and here is the overthrow. Then Absalom, he had already sent uh, messages throughout the land to all of his supporters. Say, hey, at the given signal, we're all going to say, David ain't king anymore. Absalom is king. And here's, this, here's an important part of his plan. 200 men from Jerusalem, Absalom had invited to come with him. Here's, what, here's why that's important. He invites 200 important men from David's administration to come with us to come with him to this church service in Hebron because he's such a man of God, you know. But when they get there and the overthrow starts, they lock the doors of the city and suddenly David is severely limited in his ability to respond because half his administration is hostage in Hebron. And Absalom pulls this off so well, so smoothly, that he's, by all intents, for all intents and purposes, he's king. David even calls him king in this chapter. The rest of the chapter is about David's sad retreat. There's a lot of tears. There's a lot of crying. There's a lot of mourning. David abdicates the throne with no fight. David is... Still a military genius. He knows what military odds look like. And when he hears what has happened in Hebron, he looks around and says, run, everybody get out of here before Absalom kills us all. And this, the, the rest of the chapter will just kind of hit some highlights. It's just this trail of tears this depressing retreat. In verse 17, there's this sad picture. They get what's, it's pictured like the last house on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And David just sort of stops there and lets this sad parade of all his supporters go by. Maybe he's kind of taking attendance, taking roll to see who's with him. And among those, among those who file past is a guy named Ittai the Gittite. David sees Ittai show up and he tries to talk him to going back into town. Here's what David says to Ittai the Gittite. What are you doing out here with us? You shouldn't run around scared for your life like I'm about to be. You just got here. You're a foreigner living in exile. You haven't been here long enough. Absalom won't think of you as being loyal to me. You'll be safe. Don't sentence yourself to this life of fear and misery. 
go take your family and go back into town. And Atai the Gittite says this, a double oath of loyalty. As surely as God lives, as sure as you live, David, wherever you are going to be, I'm going to be with you, whether it means life or death. It's one little bit of loyalty in a sea of betrayal. In verse 30, David ascends the Mount of Olives and weeps over Jerusalem, much like his descendant Jesus will do a thousand years later. But we do see, oh, we also see the priests and the Levites, they rescue the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is a storage box. That's what the word Ark means. It's a storage box that holds the, uh, the Old Covenant. The law, that the tables of the Ten Commandments are in there. And they don't want to leave the ark in there for that snake Absalom. So they pick up the ark and they carry it out on this retreat. When David sees them, David says, you got to take the ark back into town. This is very admirable by David. David, I'm sure it's comforting that the priests and the Levites are with me. But David first, he doesn't want to be guilty of what Israel was guilty of in 1 Samuel at the very beginning. They treated the, the Ark of the Covenant like a box of magic, if you know that story. You know, like if we have God's magic box, nobody can defeat us. David's like, no, 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 that's, that ain't happening here. But more than that, see, David doesn't know if God wants him to still be king. David was promised he would be king, and he has been. David was promised the focal point of his reign is a descendant that will come after him. That can still happen. So David knows, hey, God's kingdom is bigger than me. This whole thing ain't about me. It's about God. So you take the the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, back up into town, And God's will is going to be done here. And what God wants to do with me, what God thinks is best, that's what I want. Very admirable by David. But we do see that David is still, he's still at work even when he's in retreat. In verses 27 through 29 and then 31 through 37, what David does here is he... He plants what we would call intelligence assets inside his son Absalom's government. He plants spies in Jerusalem. He tells first his priests, hey, take the box back in there. That's where it belongs. If God wants me to be king, I'll be back where the, where the ark is at. But then he also tells them, you're going to be my eyes and ears in Jerusalem. I want you to pay attention to what's going on and let me know. Then, and I think this is very cool, verse 31, David is then told a guy named Ahithophel was among the co-conspirators with Absalom. Ahithophel is going to play a big role in the next few chapters. He was David's, one of David's most trusted advisors. He's a guy that always gives perfect advice. And David learns he's been conspiring with Absalom this whole time. 
It's a real betrayal. Ahithophel is kind of the Judas of David's story here. And when David hears that, I'm sure he's hurt, but he also knows Ahithophel is a very a big problem for him because his advice is always right. And so David offers up this quick prayer, Lord, please turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. Thwart his advice. And the cool part is this, the very next thing David sees is the answer to that prayer. David prays, God, please turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. Verse 32, when David arrived at the top of the hill where people used to worship God, Hushai the Archite was there to meet him. Now, you don't know this because we haven't read two chapters into the future yet. But Hushai the Archite is the guy who is going to turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness in Absalom's eyes. So David offers this prayer, gets to the top of the hill, and God is like, I'm way ahead of you, David. I had already answered your prayer before you even prayed it because he was already up there. And David sends, sends uh, Hushai the archite back into town, back into Jerusalem. And where we close the story, Absalom is king. Absalom is in Jerusalem. David is once again on the run, this time from his own son. He's got a few loyal people with him. And he's got a few intelligence assets planted in Jerusalem And then the credits start rolling down the screen on this episode of the David drama. So it's time now to discuss what we we can learn from that chapter. Three things I think we can learn. First, the political playbook has not changed much in the last 3,000 years, which means nor has God's sovereignty over it. Once you understand what Absalom was doing in the first 12 verses, you can't not see modern politics. You can't not see ancient politics, and you can't not see any politics in between. But the comfort that gives us is this. If God could be at work and get his exact perfect will accomplished when it was someone as wicked as Absalom running the political playbook, then God can still today get his perfect will accomplished no matter what knuckleheads are running that political playbook today. God was in control back then. God was answering David's prayers before David prayed them. God hasn't changed. It's not just politics that haven't changed that hasn't changed second thing we learn from this passage is that we can walk with the lord through the consequences of our own sin here's where i see that in this passage what david is walking through in this passage is the consequences of his own sin After David sinned with Bathsheba, after he had Uriah the Hittite murdered, 
God told David this right here. This is 2 Samuel chapter 12. God said to David, Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me, because you sinned with Bathsheba. You took Uriah's wife to be your wife. Here's what I'll tell you, buddy. Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. Isn't that what we just read about happening? Yes. But notice David's heart while he's walking through the consequences of his own sin. It's really, it's really, really easy when I've made a mess of my own life. When I start to feel some consequences of that, it's easy to sort of be disillusioned with God or feel like I can't go toward God or His people. They don't want me. God's too mad at me. Whatever it is. Don't believe any of that. David is walking through the earthly consequences of his sin. But he does not make that an excuse to keep the God who's allowed the consequences at arm's length. David understands God is still my greatest need. And so we see that great faith from David when he understands the kingdom might be mine again. It might not, but I still want whatever God wants. All of our problems are bigger than us and bigger than our circumstances. The way, the way David understood God's promises and God's kingdom are bigger than me we would be good to remind ourselves of that from time to time. Yes, my own sin has made a mess of my life. Or maybe someone else's sin is making a mess of my life. But you know what? Even this is bigger than me. I can walk with the Lord even through this terrible, painful situation he's allowing. It is more than possible to walk through the consequences of my own sin or someone else's sin. Walk with God at the same time. And the last thing this passage teaches us is that loyalty to the king is still admirable. My favorite character in this chapter um, is this guy who, who shows up out of nowhere uh, Itai the Gittite. He shows up out of nowhere. He disappears just as quickly as he showed up. He's the one that David sees him on the parade of tears and says, what are you doing out here? You'd be way better off if you just go and, you know, live safely with Absalom. And he says, no way. I'm going to be wherever you are, no matter what. All right. My fellow Christians, we still have a king. The rest of the world has been trying to depose him for 2,000 years. It can be incredibly scary and difficult to stay loyal to the real king. But there's nothing, there's nothing better for us. I don't know if people still have life verses that used to be a thing. I don't know if you've ever memorized a verse of Scripture. But let me suggest 2 Samuel 15, 21. This is exactly the sentiment we should have, not toward David, 
but toward the son of David. Because there are a million different things that scream at your heart and your desires that staying loyal to King Jesus won't be worth it. It's too lame. It's too costly. It's too scary. What if this, what if this were your and my and our cry toward our king who, yes, is under attack, but will win in the end? What if this were our cry? As the Lord lives and as you, my Lord, the King Jesus lives. Surely, wherever my Lord, the King may be, whether it means my death or my life, there also I will be. Things haven't changed all that much in 3,000 years. Politics are the same. Sin still causes a huge mess in our lives. And it can be really scary to stay loyal to the king. But to where else can we go? Where our ultimate victory is already guaranteed. Who else can promise us what the king has promised us? There is nowhere and there is no one who will ultimately deliver what Jesus will deliver. So why not? whether it mean our death or our life, whether it mean the death of our social life. Why not let this be our cry? As the Lord lives, as my Lord the King lives, wherever my King may be, whether for death or for life, there also I will be. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for, um, thank you for this, this story of seeing David scared on the run. Um, sometimes we can feel like that. God, thank you for the reminder that the more things change, the more they stay the same. Our problems haven't changed all that much. Our, our politics haven't changed all that much. Bad solutions get offered just the same. But God, our real solution is right here at the communion table that we're going to gather around in a moment. Our King executed in our place. And our loyalty, our clinging to the King, no matter what it costs us down here, that really is our solution and our hope. So Father, as you live, as our Lord, the, the King Jesus lives, wherever he may be, that's where we want to be too, with him in this life as well as the next. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. While we gather around the table this morning as the bread comes around, maybe it's time as we examine ourselves that we 
we spend a little time, I want to invite you to spend a little time taking stock of maybe the other places that you run to besides the king to make you feel safe, to make you feel accepted, to make you feel important when following the king has seemed too difficult. We'll do something with that in a minute, but I would just invite you as the bread comes around to to be thinking of those things. Let's pray. Our Father, as the bread comes around, thank you for what it symbolizes, the body of your Son uh, nailed to the cross because of us and in our place. Commune with us in Jesus' name. Amen.